Well, good morning, everybody, and praise God. I'm so glad you're here. Welcome. This is Gospel Saving Church. I'm Pastor Ed. This is one of God's true churches of these last days. I sure hope that you came today not to be entertained, but rather to hear the Word of God, to know the Word of God, and to know what God wants you to do and how He wants you to live your life or how He wants you to come to Him. Anyway, praise God. I'm so glad you're here. Uh, If you guys want to join me in a word of prayer, we always open up with a word of prayer to ask God to Bless our message and help us understand the message and help us understand His Word. So, Lord, we uh, we thank You and we love You and we praise You. And uh, we ask, Lord God, that today You would help us. Help us, Lord God. Please help us, Lord. Your Word says that we cannot understand the things of You, dear God, without Your Holy Spirit or unless Your Holy Spirit helps us understand those things. So, please, dear Heavenly Father God, we ask that You would open our eyes And open our hearts today to things and the truths of your word and of your scripture. Lord, we ask that, Lord, that whatever your word says, and a logical look at your word says, Lord God, that that's what we believe, Lord God, and so that's what we do. We thank you and we love you and we praise you, God in heaven. We ask all these things in Jesus Christ's mighty name. Amen. So sorry about the delay this week, guys, on getting the sermon up. But here we are, praise God. We're going to be in Acts chapter 13, verses 44 through 48. The title of our sermon today, as you already looked when you logged on, was The Schizophrenic God of John Calvin. A little controversial today, but, you know, we've got the Scripture sometimes holds some controversy, and so the way people look at Scripture also holds some controversy. So anyway, we're going to be in Acts 13, verses 44 through 48, if you guys want to If you already have your Bibles open, great. If not, then open them up now. Otherwise, you can just listen along. Are we there yet? All right. Praise God. Well, I'm going to read it, and you can follow along, or you can read along, or you can just listen. Acts 13, 44 through 52. The Bible says this. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy. And contradicting and blaspheming, they opposed the things spoken by Paul. Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first, but since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, I have set you as a light to the Gentiles, that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. Now when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as been appointed to eternal life believed. Today, sadly, our sermon will be full of controversy, as if you couldn't tell by the title already, right? But when certain ideas come up in Scripture, I must address them, because I teach verse by verse through the entire Bible. Right now we're working our way through the book of Acts, and so I must teach every single verse in the book of Acts, and if there's tough verses that come up, well, since I teach verse by verse, This is what happens. And there are some pretty confusing things in our section of Scripture today, that's for sure. So let's get into our study, because I don't want to waste too much time on the things of the the Word here that uh, are not the main focus of the sermon. Not that they're not important, but I don't want to spend too much time focusing on things that are the non-essentials of the topic of the sermon today. So let's get going. Just a quick recap of last week with a few details of the non-controversial verses that we study today. So remember last week, in the last couple of verses we studied last week, we saw the response of the Jews or, or the proselytes and the Gentiles to Jesus Christ in his gospel, right? Verse 43, some of the Jews or end devout proselytes followed Paul, which, which meant that they decided to follow Jesus Christ because, again, 
Those that have repented unto a heart believe in Christ will want to be around those who love and follow him, while those that don't want to be around Jesus Christ's servants won't want to be around those that love and follow Jesus Christ. Remember, that's just a principle. Uh, but don't forget, Paul had other listeners, the Gentiles, that were there too, and, and they weren't ready just yet to commit to Christ. They needed some time to think or contemplate what Paul was preached about Jesus Christ. And, and so they didn't come to the saving heart belief of, of Christ just yet. Instead, the Bible says that they begged Paul and Barnabas to return the following Sabbath to speak those words to them. And I believe it was because they wanted to count the cost. And that's where Luke picks up this section of scripture we read today, starting in verse 44. We read this, Paul returns to this area to preach the words of eternal life of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles that they begged him and Barnabas to come back. And it says this, verse 44, on the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. What an audience this must have been. Wow. First, they begged Paul and Barnabas to come back then, uh, similar to Cornelius with his family and friends back in uh, earlier in the, in the book of Acts. The Gentiles get almost the whole city to come together to hear. Uh, now, I couldn't find anything as far as how many people were there in that population, that city, but just the fact that Luke pen the words, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. I don't care if it was just a few thousand, which I'm sure it was more, but even if it were just a few thousand, that's super impressive. Uh, that's Jesus Christ and Peter impressive. For we know that when Jesus Christ went throughout his ministry, he often had multitudes that were gathered around him to hear the word of God. Now, with this amazing and awesome as having almost the whole entire city, right, come together to hear you preaching, it's not always a 100% good thing as we see here. Not everyone is there because they're glad to hear about Jesus Christ. Look at verse 45. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy. And that's never a good thing when we're, we're envious. The Bible says that we're not supposed to be envious as Christians because, you know, we see things that others have and we want them and that takes our eyes off of God. And, and anyway, they go on after their envy and they contradicting and blaspheming, they opposed the things spoken by Paul. So sadly, when Luke pens the words, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God, all of them weren't there to truly listen because of interest. Uh, some were there to scoff and to do evil, which means that some of the Jews that heard Paul's preaching the week before, who, who knew that they were coming back because the Gentiles had begged them to come back, well, they came back purposefully just to cause problems. Uh, this happens sometimes. When someone rejects the gospel, they become super hard-hearted or angry towards it, and they become hardened enemies toward it, uh, with an intent to destroy it. And, and unfortunately, you know, even though people do this, that's not what God wants. It breaks God's heart. Second Peter 3, 9. He desires none to perish or, or reject him and go to hell and all to come to repentance or, or a heart belief to be saved, right? Anyway, that breaks God's heart. Verse 46. Look at what Paul and Barnabas say to these Christ-hating Jews who came there for no other purpose than to destroy the gospel message for the Gentiles. Two parts. Look at the first part of verse 46. Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. Put, put your finger there on that first. We're going we're gonna to go a second half here in a minute, but I just want to talk about that first part first. So, so Jesus Christ said that he came for the Jews only. G Jesus, Matthew chapter 10, verses 5 and 6. Uh, those 12 Jesus sent out and commanded them, saying, 
Do not go into the way of the Gentiles and do not enter the city of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Uh, Bible scripture, even including the Gospels, is very clear that Christ came for the Jews first, but that his eternal life-giving life, death, and resurrection from the dead was to pay for the sins of all mankind and not just Jews. Jesus Christ, John 3.16, we all know well. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever, or as the King James puts it, whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Uh, moving on, look at the rest of verse 40, 46. Put your finger, take your finger back off that first there. Uh, but since you reject it, Paul tells them, who rejected it? Well, they did. Well, I'm getting there. I'm jumping ahead of myself. But because you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. Again, I come back. Here's where the controversy starts. Who did Paul say count, they counted them? Who, excuse me. Who, who did Paul say counted them worthy of everlasting life? Was it God? Was it Jesus Christ? Or was it themselves? Well, read it again, verse 46, the second half. But since you reject it or judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, which is how he follows on. So God didn't reject him and Jesus Christ didn't reject him. No, it was they themselves that judged themselves unworthy and rejected the gospel. Then because they rejected, Paul says that he and Barnabas were going to go turn to the Gentiles instead. Remember Jesus in Matthew Chapter 7, verse 6. Uh, Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you in pieces. If we're sharing the gospel and people just don't want anything to do with the Lord Jesus Christ, we're not supposed to continue to throw our pearls, which Jesus Christ was represented in Scripture as a, the pearl of great price, right? We're not supposed to continue to cast our pearls or, or Jesus Christ and his love for them like, like we would uh, before swine. Now, before we move on, again, I had just said, this is where the message starts getting full of controversy. I'm going to discuss it with some detail here. Why is it full of controversy? Because of a couple of things that Luke records. One thing that Paul just said and something else that Luke writes in a couple of verses from now. And again, here at Gospel Saving Church, I tease verse by verse. And I, whether they're difficult or controversial, I, I jump into them and I just don't gloss them over or pass them over. I dig into them deep and I teach them. So, so I hope you're ready because here we go, part one of the controversy. As a backdrop to the controversy I will discuss, I must teach you this a little bit of information that I don't really like, and it, I consider it, in, in fact, to me it was poison when I first learned of it, so I, I hope it's not poison to you, I'm just teaching you the facts. But one of the most domineering Christian doctrines or faiths in the whole world, aside from the Catholic faith, is a doctrine called Calvinism created by John Calvin many, many, many years ago. This doctrine or faith has five major points of belief. And sadly, whether you know it or not, you may be in this category or not, but sadly, the majority of all people who claim the name of Christ have fallen into the deception of at least one of this doctrine's core beliefs. Well, this uh, core, these five core beliefs, people have kind of given an acronym to called TULIP, T-U-L-I-P. They go as such. The T stands for 
total depravity. That, that means that to a Calvinist, or somebody, maybe it's you that I'm speaking to here, you believe that somebody spiritually is like a dead corpse in an actual coffin, in a grave, before they come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, or before they were to get saved. They're like a dead person who has zero, spiritually speaking, has zero ability to understand anything about God. In fact, they're dead, they can't, they're spiritually, they're like a corpse in a grave. That, that's the best way I can put it. You, unconditional election that they believe a Calvinist believe maybe you believe that what God does is God he looks down he elects and, and he has as we'll talk about in scripture today from the foundation before the foundations of the world God elects people of course then we get to our next point which kind of rolls in L the limited atonement and that what that says is that God Christ Jesus sacrifice was only for some people. So now, you, you combine the U and the L there, you find that what Calvinists believe, maybe you believe, is that Christ's sacrifice only was good for some, what, what you or they call the elect, which is the unconditional election. God uh, des decides who he decides before the foundation of the earth to elect some, which is a very little amount, and it's a limited atonement. That's so Christ's death is only good for those that God elected from the foundations of the world to be saved, and then that's just it. Going on. I, irresistible grace. So whoever God elects, these God will come upon with his grace, and then eventually, we'll talk about it a little bit, I actually found a little definition from a Calvinist website, uh, it talks about how God's grace will basically overpower or, or change the heart of the sinner, the, the elect person, in, in order that they can be saved, and it's something that they cannot refuse eventually. And then the P, perseverance of the saints that is to say that once someone is saved once an elect is saved that they can never ever ever lose that no matter what they do and that's unconditional so it's unconditional eternal security also known as a very fa famous acronym of today uh capital o-s-a-s -S, or once saved always saved now i don't know what you my listener believe about each of these points but biblically i personally, according to the Bible, have a huge problem with every single one of them and do not personally believe even one of them as far as a, a, a general across the board for every single human being type of thing like a Calvinist would. And now today, I'll keep my tangent mostly about the ones that pertain to the section of scripture we're reading today that I believe refutes a couple of those different things that we're going to talk about, different those little uh points on that acronym that he gave, but uh, but I will dive into one or two others that uh, I'm not going to hit them all, but I'm going to mostly stick on a couple of them with one little extra one toward the end of my message today. But, but getting back to our scripture and the points that I'm going to talk about from it, remember again, I kind of alluded to it already, Paul said, verse 46, the second part, but since you reject it, and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. Now, in regards to the problems I have with Calvinism, I see here, I must pick on the first point of Calvinism, the I in the tulip, meant for irresistible grace. And I must ask these questions to those who believe in the I from irresistible grace, or you, if this is maybe the first time you're hearing about this doctrine, or maybe you've been wondering about it, maybe you've heard about it, and you've, you've pondered it, and maybe you're thinking, well, could it be, or could it not be? Well, just think about this. 
just listen to these questions I have. If irresistible grace in the TULIP acronym is correct. Paul just told them that they, not God or not Jesus Christ, rejected the offer of everlasting life. So my first question would be this. For someone that believes this or thinking about it, for someone to reject something... Don't they have to have it be offered them in order for them to reject it? Well, exactly. A hundred percent. You cannot reject the ice cream cone that I'm trying to give you. If I'm trying to give you an ice cream cone, you can't reject it unless I try to offer it to you first. So, so just have that question in mind. Irresistible grace. Think about that. You can't really reject it unless somebody's trying to give it to you. And then think about number two. These Jews were offered the chance of eternal life in Jesus Christ because Paul and Barnabas were preaching it to them right then and there. And if no one can resist God's grace unto salvation once God offers it to them, eventually over time, as we'll look at a Calvinist definition, which is what the irresistible grace stands for, and God was calling these Jews through his grace, because that's how he calls all people, through his grace, how are these Jews able to reject the everlasting life that God was offering them? Now, John Piper, major spokesman for the religion of Calvinism, says this of IG on his website, uh, Desiring God, I believe is the name of the website, Irresistible grace means that the resistance that all human beings exert against God every day, Romans 3, 10 through 12, and Acts 7, 51, is wonderfully overcome at the proper time by God's saving grace for undeserving rebels whom he chooses freely to save. There's your irresistible grace, along with a little unconditional election there. So, here we go. So again, since God was calling them unto salvation, think about the definition I just read you. Since God was calling these Jews who rejected Jesus Christ unto salvation in Jesus Christ by the preaching of Paul and Barnabas through his grace, if irresistible grace were true, wouldn't they have been, I'm going to use a term that's not really, it's not part of your English language, but wouldn't they, be, wouldn't they have been irresistibly graced into receiving it? I mean, isn't that simple logic? God offered it to them. They counted themselves unworthy. But yet irresistible grace says that God will change their hearts in a certain amount of time. Or, and then they'll, uh, they'll come to know Christ. Yet Paul said, I'm moving on. You're, you've counted yourself unworthy. We're moving on. And, and that's what happened in real life scripture time. But that's not the only point I have a problem with. I also see a huge problem with the you of unconditional election here. Uh, Paul just told them that they judge themselves unworthy of everlasting life. Uh, that is what God's inspired word through Paul's mouth just said. They judge themselves unworthy of everlasting life. And the problem I have with the you of the man's doctrine of Calvinism and John Piper and all Calvinists, the modern day Calvinists that is today, and, and even going back to John Calvin with his double election, we'll talk about that in a little bit, is that they teach that God doesn't elect to save anyone on the merit of themselves. It's all just by His grace. Well, 
Huge logical question here. How can anyone judge themselves unworthy, which caused Paul to say, forget you then, and God's moving on from you then. You, you've turned away from eternal life because they judge themselves unworthy of receiving something that God elected them to have unconditionally. Now, I don't know if, I mean, that's just not, it's not real hard to get. If God elected them unconditionally, but yet they themselves rejected and then which caused Paul to say, get out of here, You're, that's it, eternal salvation's out for you. How could, it, man's doctrine is not lining up with what the Bible actually just taught us. In the unconditional election, God elects people, no merit of themselves, yet these guys here judge themselves unworthy, causing eternal life to not come to them. If the Calvinist doctrine of, of unconditional election were true, they wouldn't have been able to do this. Yet they did. Uh, for if God Almighty unconditionally elects someone for something, and irresistible grace says that they have to take it because, as the man's doctrine of Calvinists will say, he'll change their hearts so that they'll want to take it, how is it possible that these Jews here did not receive it? Uh, because that is what the Jews say and do here. And this causes the chance of eternal life to not be offered to them. They're out. That's what Paul just said. You judge yourselves worthy of eternal life. We're moving on to the Gentiles. So I contest, because Scripture says so, that, they own, that the only way that they could have done what they did here in Scripture is if God Almighty wants, desires, or, and, or elects them to receive eternal life, but because God Almighty gave them and all mankind their own free will apart from His influence, which is what the Bible talks about, then they can reject God's advance toward them and that they tell him no and that he says, I love you, but that's it. I, I, I can't do anything about it. You, you've made your choice even though this is what I want. Uh, this would be, uh, if you didn't understand what I just said, I'll explain a little bit more. This would be free will or, or autonomous free will, which means autonomy means that we got something so we have a free will that God does not control, which is exactly opposite of what a true Calvinist would say. They'll say, we have free will, but we don't have free will. It's kind of like a pipe dream. It's just, it's just a, it's, it's, it's something, it's an illusion. We, we have it, but we don't have it. We, God, we, it looks like we have free will, but really God controls it, so we don't. And, you know, so therefore, whatever God wants, that's just what we do. Autonomy in the free will category only, which is what we see in the Bible, for people to either accept God or reject God or accept Jesus Christ or reject Jesus Christ, Autonomy means that God gave us a free will that he doesn't, he doesn't make do something that he wants as far as accepting Christ or rejecting Christ. Now, I'm not talking about we have autonomy or we're autonomous in the idea that we can exist apart from God or Jesus Christ. The Bible says that in him we live and move and have our being. And so there is no such thing as 
anybody, whether they accept God or reject God or Christ or Jesus or, or whether they think that they are or not, people, we, everybody is held together by God's power. And so we wouldn't even be existing without God's power. And so we're not autonomous in the idea that we can self-exist apart from God. But autonomy in the free will category in the, what the Bible shows us here with these Jews is that God gave them a free will that he did not control to accept or reject him. That man, he gives men that choice whether they'll accept Christ or reject Christ. And he doesn't force it, force that free will of the masses to do what he wants. It's called autonomous free will. Well, you say, Pastor Ed, this makes man stronger than God. And I'll say, no, I disagree. No one is greater or stronger than he. But I believe, because the Bible teaches this, that God Almighty made us with autonomous free will. If you think of Adam and Eve, God gave Adam and Eve free will. He said, here, I love you, follow me, have fellowship with me, but don't eat of this one tree. And that tree of the knowledge of good and evil represented choice. And then God did not influence them to eat or not to eat. In fact, God said, don't eat. And, and what happened is, is they got tempted by the devil. And so they went ahead and ate. And so we see there that at, God told them not to do something. They did it. God got mad at them for doing it. We know that that means that they had an autonomous free will because unless you believe in the schizophrenic God of John Calvin, God would have then, if you want to believe that God made them eat the fruit of the tree, that means God gave them a command that they broke, but then when he came in, he got angry. I, I'm just going through the book of Genesis right now in my daily reading through the Bible. God got angry with them for eating the tree, eating from the fruit of the tree. So did God, unless you're John, unless you believe in John Calvin's schizophrenic God, did God tell them not to do something? Then they did it, and then did he get angry with them for doing what he told them not to do? Again, that's not the God of the Bible. And so he made us, Adam and Eve were the, were the patriarchs, were the, were the forerunners of this autonomous free will, to have our own free will that he built us with to accept him or reject him. And if you think, well, that makes us stronger than God, I want you to think about this really neat car manufacturing analogy that God just gave me within the last couple few weeks here. Think about it like this. Is the car manufacturer greater than the car itself that they manufacture? Absolutely. But you say, but the car, it can do uh, 500 miles an hour, and it can go 0 to 60 in, in, in half a second, and it's blah, 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 and it's so great, and it could do these things. And I'll say, yes, it's great. It can do these things. But who's greater? Who, whose badge is pressed all over that whole car? Well, it would be the car company itself who made the car to do certain things and to be certain ways. If the car company didn't want to make that car to go 500 miles an hour and to do 0, 60 and a half a second, whatever, then it could have pulled and it could have withdrawn that. And same thing with us and autonomous free will. God could have said, no, they don't have free will. And then he could have just forced us to do whatever. Yet he didn't. He made us that way, not making us stronger him not wanting to have robots, which would be what non-autonomous, which would be God-controlled free will, which is, wouldn't be free will at all. God-controlled will would make us robots. And that is the only conclusion that we can make. Now, now please, 
Listen to me here. Uh, all my Bible listeners, all my listeners out there, there's no way that the points of irresistible grace and unconditional election towards all humanity can be true according to what Paul just said to these Jews. If the Calvinism, if the five points of Calvinism were actually true towards all. Uh, Romans 8, 28, or 29 through 30, I'm going to talk about it because I'm not scared of these verses like a lot of Christians. And hopefully maybe you're, if you're kind of afraid of this kind of stuff, maybe you'll listen to me today and you're not going to be afraid of it either. But here's the, one of their flagship verses, and I, and, I, and I only point it out for in regards to, again, another idea that goes against this irresistible grace and this unconditional election, this God calling and them having to. Romans 8, 29-30 says this, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. And I do believe that this is true also. And I'm not going to talk about that just yet. But only partially of the actual predestination. And again, we'll talk about it in a little bit. But for all humanity... I want to talk about this. In regards to all humanity, to disprove the idea that God Almighty doesn't implement Romans 8 and God's predestination and calling across the board and everyone where it forces people to come to Him, all mankind, or it forces all people to go away from Him, I want you to remember that we got Matthew chapter 22 as a parable that Jesus gave. Remember the parable. Jesus has given them a parable of the great wedding feast. And this is a wedding feast where once we die, whoever's saved or whoever's not saved, well, we're of course, we're going to go to heaven or we're going to go to hell. But of course, in this great wedding feast, Jesus kind of gave an analogy as in, hey, I sent my disciples out and these people that I originally call first, speaking of the Jews, God elect, God's elect Jews, he called them, but they rejected. Of course, not all, most of them rejected. But then God in the parable, Christ in the parable says, but go out and go call those other people. Just go into the highways and byways and call those people because you know what? Since the original people that I called didn't want to come, go call others and, and you know, let's get them in here. Let's get them in the wedding feast. It was a picture of the wedding feast that we're going to have once we die and we go to heaven. Those that are saved will have with Jesus Christ at the end. Now, to that one, which lines up with Romans 8, with the whole predestination and the calling of God and Jesus Christ, Matthew 22, 14 says this, as far as God's calling on people. So remember, in the Calvinist idea, if God calls you, then that's it. If you're predestined and chosen from the foundation of the world, you're an elect, you're saved, that's it. You're done, you're going to be saved, and that's it. Now remember, that's only for the little, the 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 limited atonement, only for the few that Christ decided to save just, just because Hey, whatever. I don't believe in this. I'm just telling you what they believe. Uh, Matthew 22, 14, Jesus says this, For many are called, but few are chosen. See, he saw one there in the, at that feast that wasn't, although they were called, for they weren't wearing the special robe that the, was required for the feast, uh, which can re- represent several things. But, but nevertheless, Many are called, but few are chosen. And the, the one that, if you remember the parable, Matthew twenty-two fourteen 14, or Matthew 22, if you remember the parable, they were all there and they were all called, but yet not all of them got to stay. This one was cast out, and that would be, of course, he was cast out into weeping and gnashing of teeth, and of course, that would represent hell, of course. That, that's, not a, that's not the good place, right? So here we have, many are called, but few are chosen. Now, if everyone that was elected by God, and, and so 
He called them, you know, unconditional election, irresistible grace, coming from the double election, which means that uh, the one God Almighty calls, he'll change their will so that they'll want to come to him. Why would Jesus say in Matthew 20, 14, many are called, but few are chosen? If you are the called, then you will eventually come and be saved. Remember John Piper's description of UE, right? He'll change your heart so that you'll want to, yet... Scripturally, what we see in the scripture, what the Bible says, Jesus Christ said that many are called, but not all that are called are actually chosen for heaven. And, and even if they show up there, because everybody's, see, here's the thing, everybody's going to heaven when they die. I don't care if you're an atheist or you're a Buddhist or you're a Hindu or you're a, a rebel Satanist, everybody's going to heaven because that's where God's judgment seat is. And so we're appointed to die once, and then we go stand before the judgment seat of Christ and God, and then they judge us, and we either, he says, well done, good and faithful servant, enter and enjoy the order, or be gone from me, I never knew you, or, or be gone from me, I, I cast you out, right? So we're all going to go to heaven, but we're not all going to stay. So here, Jesus, Matthew 22, 14, with the context of heaven as the context, Jesus, many are called, but few are chosen. Yet Calvinists say, if God calls you, then you are the elect, and that you will be his. Uh, now how can this be in the Calvinist doctrine? How can the double election, in case you don't know what that means, double election, John Calvin taught, this is where all the five points stem from, double election, God either predestined you for heaven from, the, from before the foundations of the world, excuse me, or he predestined you for hell uh, according to whatever his will, and that's it, and, and you either are born saved or you're born unsaved. And those that are born saved, they can't resist it. It will happen to them. Unconditional election, irresistible grace, you will be saved. Those that are not the, the chosen elect, those that are not the called, they won't be saved. There's nothing they can do about it. They're just born for hell, and, and that's it. Yet, many are called, but few are chosen, completely and utterly destroys that whole idea, as well as the section here in Acts chapter 13, where these Jews counted themselves unworthy of everlasting life. It just blows my mind how anybody couldn't believe this. But but think about this as far as unconditional election. Right? I could maybe maybe I'm just kind of like throwing this these verses out of context. Maybe I am. Maybe I am. Maybe I would be, but then that's not all we have. We have Jesus Christ talking in Matthew 23, 37 through 38, who, who one time I had a Calvinist come to my church, and he was really trying to make me a Calvinist. He, and he, every time he got me alone, he started beating me over the head with his predestination and Calvinism and Romans 8 and Ephesians 1. And da, 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 da. Yeah, one time I, God was speaking to me, and I was because I was seeking him on this issue, and he showed me Matthew chapter 23, verses 37 and 38. Jesus speaking here, and he says this. Now remember, to a Calvinist, if you're the called, you're the called. If you're the condemned, you're the condemned, and there's nothing neither one can do. You're just either going to be saved or you're not going to be saved. Whatever God's will is, then that's what you'll have to do. Yet, Matthew 23, 37, 38, when I asked him this question, his face dropped. He had no answer, yet he still kept badgering me and, and, and pounding me about Calvinism and he could never answer my question. Jesus says this. It's kind of a famous verse. Oh, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stolen those that are sent to her, how often I wanted. Now, now that's important. That's my new King James Version. The Greek word there for wanted is philio. And it's defined as to will. 
Now, this is Jesus Christ talking, who's God. So this, I wanted here, means that Jesus Christ, was he, wa- he willed it to will, to have a mind intend, to be reserved, to determined, to purpose, to desire, to wish. So this is God, this is Christ, in God, you know, God, Jesus Christ and God are the one. And he said, how long I, how often I wanted, means I willed you, and then he goes on, to gather your children together as Hen, as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. So, so God willed and desired to save these Jews from hell, but they rejected God's will to save them. Their will overriding God's will to save them, making in the category of their salvation, of accepting or rejecting God Almighty and Jesus Christ, their will was stronger or greater than God's will to save them. And in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus Christ just gave us an example of having autonomous free will, which is a will aside from God's influencing them to come to him. God was wanting them. God was even reaching out to them. God was calling them. Yet they, with their autonomous free will only, not that they were existing apart from God, but that the free will that God made them with overrode God's will to save them. Wow. Yet, irresistible grace says, according to the free will of mankind, that eternal life and being saved are either God's will or not God's will, and whatever he wills or determines cannot be overwritten. They believe that God Almighty's will, uh, he wills a very small group, as I've said already, which he called, they call the elect, and they're elected from the, before the foundations of the world, and when he wills it, it happens, and then that's it, and then he desires, and, and for the non-elect, that the masses, of course, uh, you know, as, as Calvinism teaches elitism, that the, the masses then go to hell because he didn't want them to be saved. And the problem I have with this is that it's not what we read out of the scriptures and the examples given to us by God to study. Again, all this Calvinism five-point stuff comes from John's idea of double election. I've, I've already addressed that. J- just think about unconditional election and think of Cornelius. Cornelius was just a seeker of God. And he didn't even know God. He was of the Italian regiment, Acts chapter 10, verses 1 through 6. And the Bible says that he basically, he just sought, excuse me, he just sought the Lord every day. He, did, he had a love for God. And then verse uh, 4, excuse me, 4 of Acts 1, or 10, verse 4 says, that then the angel comes and says, your prayers and your alms have come up before a memorial for God. So God saw it, and then he responded to what the man did. First uh, Chronicles 16.9, I believe, says that the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to them. If God knew all the ones that were going to be saved, and the ones that weren't, aren't going to be saved, and, and if he knew every single thing, like people think that Scripture tends to think that he that they say he does, why would his eyes have to go to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to them? He would just know whose heart is loyal to him, and then he would just show himself strong to those people. He wouldn't have to go all over the earth looking for people anyway. 
you, you see the problems that I have with Calvinism and the points that I've discussed so far. If you, my listener, if you, if you believe in this Calvinist stuff, would you just read your Bibles and use common sense without adding things to Scripture where they speak plainly? Well, well there's a certain force behind you know, somebody and that's what makes them turn. No, if you would just read the Bible outside of Calvinism, you'll see that Calvinism is an anti-Bible, anti-Christ doctrine. It's, and it's, and I'm, the title of the sermon, John Calvin's God was schizophrenic. And there are a lot of false teaching there. And there have been a lot of false teachings that have grown in this almost 2000 years since Christ left. But, but I don't want to stop there. I want to, I want to finish our verses we're getting to where we're running out of time. Moving on with some good news. I don't want to. I don't want to skip it. Uh, off of the controversial topic for just a moment. So Paul just said to the Jews that they themselves rejected the everlasting life that, that was being offered to them. Verse forty said, "For so the Lord." Uh, then we read that, of course. Then they moved on to the Gentiles. Look at the verse forty-seven. For so the Lord commanded us. I have set you as a light to the Gentiles, that you should be for salvation to the ends. Of the earth, Paul is referencing the almost greatest news that God ever gave in His Word to, to people that were not Jewish. His offer of eternal life came to the Gentiles, and it wasn't just for Jews. A, a Gentile is anybody that's not Jewish, and and if and if you're not uh, Jewish and you're a Gentile, you should dance around the room and get on your knees and praise the Lord because God's offering what, what the scripture says. He's offering us the same type of salvation that he gave Jews way back when under the old covenant. God only mostly offered his salvation to Jews in the old covenant. There were uh, there was a provision for Gentiles to come in, but you don't see many. But now under the new covenant, Christ sacrificed by his blood. God's accepted any and all that want to come to him freely outside of what kind of bloodline they're born from. Same as Paul says in Romans 1.16, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God is salvation for everyone he didn't say the elect, or he didn't say the not. He said, for everyone who believes, for the Jew first, and also for the Greek. Now, uh, look at just how this news was received by the Gentiles when they heard it. Look at the first part of verse 48. Before our last part of verse 48, which was super controversial again. Look at the first part of verse 48. Now, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. Told you that they thought it was good news. Now, now look at the second half of verse 48, and, and I want you to think about the points we've talked about so far, and, and you're going to see how it's super controversial. Verse 48, is, and this is, this is a, a Calvinist dream here. This is, this is, their, this is their, wow, we've got it. We found, we found the, the missing link verse that proves our doctrine right. Verse 48, and as many as have been appointed to eternal life believe. So the good news there, remember, in the whole verse is that God had grace on the Gentiles, or has still grace on the Gentiles, eternal life, same as he did with the Jews of old. The seemingly bad news in the second half of that verse is that if you read the verse in context, which is what I do, it reads that. It reads it that ugly, to, most, to, to some Christians, that ugly 14-letter word predestination that Christians are always afraid of. Again, I told you, not me. And the unconditional election that I just spoke so adamantly against from verse 46. Remember, conditional election, which is the way I believe the Bible teaches for all people, for the masses, defined as God calls 
people here, uh, many are called, few are chosen. They either accept or reject the message because they have autonomous free will. God sees that they accept or reject, then he either, 1 Chronicles 16.9, he either accepts them for salvation, shows himself strong to them, or he rejects them to the hell that they choose to go to. On the reject side, uh, in verse 46, where Paul stated it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first, but since you reject it, you judge yourselves, you judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life. And on the accept side, Jesus Christ, Matthew eleven twenty-eight, come to me all, you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And John 7, 37, 38. On the last day, the day of the great feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture is set out of his heart, will flow rivers of living water. What both Paul and Jesus Christ taught there screams out loud for everyone, the masses, to all, the whosoever, John three sixteen people, conditional election. God desires all people to be saved, and if they would just surrender to Jesus Christ, as he desires them to, turn to him and away from their sin and away from their being their own God, they should be saved as Jesus Christ desires them to be. But with that said, there's the other side of the coin. What some other scriptures speak so powerfully about the second half of this verse, verse 48, it is just the opposite. As many as have been appointed to eternal life, they believed. This verse clearly screams out, no matter how you read it, no matter how, even Young's Acts 13, 48, and did believe as many as were appointed to life age during, or, or as our New King James put it, as many as got appointed or predestined to life, eternal life, believed. Which, again, clearly screams out conditional election, right? Romans 8, Ephesians 1. And again, there's no other way to look at it. You can try. I have. That's it. So I want us. We need to. We need to talk here. What's the deal? How can two verses in the same section even clearly give two different ideas about how God saves people? So in the same section, we're not talking about one came from Peter and one came from Paul, or one came from a parable of Jesus Christ and one came from John in the Book of Revelation. We're talking about within a couple verses of one another. One verse says, screams out conditional salvation, conditional upon if they'll turn, uh, right? Not, not, not unconditional election, but conditional election. They were had the choice with their autonomous free will. The other one screams out loud that God elected them and chose them, and then that's just it. Now, now what is the deal? How, how do we see this? I told you that today's section of scripture was very controversial. So what's the answer since this scripture, even right from Paul and right from Luke, who were together doing this work here, how could these scriptures speak of both? Well, I believe, because the Bible says so, that both are true. Meaning that there are some that God predestines to the elect, and it is a small group, and I... I, that elect group is kind of small, but that he also gives individuals, which would be the masses now, choice or autonomous free will. A free will that is completely autonomous of his control or him forcing them to accept or reject him. And this would be, again, for the majority of or, or the masses. And the reason I believe these ways is, again, because the Bible speaks of both. Well, where, number one... Right here in this section of scripture where we, where we saw both, right? Uh, number two, a concept that God Almighty showed me some time ago in response to me 
seeking him on this issue. Most people, I've never heard this taught from any church ever, but I, I, but I read the whole Bible and I take the whole counsel of the Word of God in trying to understand the whole counsel and trying to understand God's will because that's that's one thing that God wants His children to do to seek His will. But number two, I see God speaking of both in Romans eleven six. Speaking of how there can be both, Paul says this: Even so, then. At this present time, there is a remnant, which a remnant's always usually small, according to the election of grace. Why would God elect some according to grace? Romans 9.11. That the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. You see, God won't be outdone. Nobody's going to look at the eternity or nobody's going to look at the future. That Let's say we look at the future of, of Revelation in the Bible and all the prophecies and all the things that God said were going to happen and all the things that are coming. Nobody's going to look at those and go, I'm going to beat God. I'm going to go again. I'm going to see God's word there and I'm going to go against God's word and I'm going to do this and I'm going to stop God. Nobody is going to stop God the plans of God for this world and for all eternity, time past, or time to come, I should say. And, and he has a plan for the end time, and so it's going to happen, and then that's just it. it it's going to be. And, and the same thing for he wants to save people. And the thing is, is when we read these scriptures, and we, when we read the whole Bible, we read that there are some that God elects. For instance, the 12 disciples. For instance, some of the, some, or well, all of the prophets from the Old Testament. But what were those prophets' messages? And what was the disciples' messages? The, their messages were to the masses. Their messages, their epistles were to the Christians, of course, to teach Christians. But even in that, as we're going to look at in a little bit, their messages to Christians were, go out and seek the lost. Go out and preach the message of Christ to the lost, to those that are not saved, without any any kind of word of election there at all that they give. And so the purpose of God's plan and, and his remnant according to the election of grace that God speaks about, both in Romans 11, 6 and Romans 9, 11, speak of God electing these certain people so that they could serve him so that otherwise the devil would capture everybody's heart and then salvation would be wiped out. Nobody would know of salvation. But God's grace toward mankind says, I have to elect some so that all can hear the message. And so that's how God won't be outdone because as we're going to see, God loves, truly loves everybody. And in Christ's atonement was truly for all people. Okay, He has plans for eternity and they will be fulfilled are you on board? Are, are you going to listen and heed his message? Or are you not? Uh, because again, just because he has an election according to his grace and to fulfill his wills on earth doesn't mean that he forces you or me or anyone except for those elect in a sense all, uh, for all mankind to be saved and, and, not, go to, and, and, and not go to hell. Right? He wants us to be saved, but he doesn't force us. Uh, unless... You look at John Calvin's God, who was schizophrenic, and we'll talk about why in a little bit. Why do I keep saying that? Because, you see, Calvin taught a schizophrenic God in those ideas that he taught. His God, either, think about it now, 
elected people for heaven and hell, and in his doctrine of double election, no one has true free will, and that is just simply not what Scripture teaches as far as everyone is concerned. He, he taught that whoever God wills for all humanity to, to go to heaven, they'll go to heaven, and whoever he wills to go to hell, they're just going to go to hell, and that's it. There's no free will or no free choice. God just predestines everything. Why does this make God's... Uh, Calvin's God schizophrenic. Well, according to his doctrine, lining up with the Bible, we have to look at all the scriptures. And, and so we're going to look at the very controversial, the very bold Calvinistic scriptures, but we're also going to look at scriptures outside of those sayings in the Calvin's doctrine, and we're going to line them up, and we're going to see that we have both, and we're going to see how God, how Calvin's God was schizophrenic. So for our first examples, for Ephesians 1, 3-6, we read this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, and to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us, accepted in the beloved. Now, now before we go on to look at the next section that, that shows us just the opposite, I'd like to you to keep this one question in your mind. If you believe in the election and if you believe in the predestination for all mankind, and some are either predestined for heaven and some are predestined for hell, I want you to think about this. This one question is going to kind of, it's going to kind of lead us to the rest of the message here. Think about this one question in mind. Does God know for sure that the elect will choose him? A according to Calvin's doctrine, according to what we just read there, Ephesians 1, does God know for sure that the elect will choose him? Well, the only answer that you should have right now is to be a resounding, absolutely right on the money. Yet, keep that question in mind. Listen to Acts chapter 17, verses 22 through 28. For let's say, well, we'll just say, you'll just have to make the decision. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you're very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Now these would be to Gentiles, by the way, I'm breaking off the scripture. This is not to Jews, these were Gentiles. Therefore, we go on with scripture, The one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to life, breath, and all things. Which is what I told you. We're not, we're not autonomous outside of God's power to keep us that way. We're all, I'm just making an argument here that God gives autonomy and our free will in the free will category only. Verse 26, And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and their boundaries of their dwellings. And that is a predestination. He put them in certain places in certain times. But verse 27 gets real interesting. So that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Now that question again. Does God know that the elect will choose him according to Ephesians chapter 1? Absolutely resounding, 100% yet. 
Verse 27 of Acts 17 just told us of those that God was calling and drawing there, because again, Paul was preaching a message, speaking about Jesus Christ, that God was, you know, that they that he put him in certain times and certain places so that they should seek him. So we're talking about salvation, right? He just said there in verse 27 that he had to hope that they would listen or grope for him and find him. Now, if this group in Acts 17 was the same elect group of Ephesians 1, why would Paul say that God has to hope that they would grope for him so that they might find him? Romans 8.24 says, We were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope, for why does one still hope for what he sees? Listen, guys, girls, anyone listening out there, please, God would not have to hope for the elect to be saved because he sees them at the end of eternity. For the Bible says he sees the beginning from the end. Uh, so in this case, if, if that's what that really means, that he sees all that are and sees all that are not, and, and so on and so forth, and that he elects some and elects not, he would not, in this case, he would not have to hope that he would save these people or that they would be saved because he would know that they were or that they wouldn't or that they weren't going to be. And yet Paul just told us that he does have to hope that these people would grow for him to find him. And then Paul's really talking about the masses as he wasn't just talking to those there in Acts chapter 17. Now, if I have to hope for something, I don't know that I have it for sure. If I have to hope for something, if I'm hoping that I get that gift for Christmas, do I know that I have it 100%? No. So you, you can't hope for something that you already know that you have, which means that the only way that God Almighty would have to hope for anyone to be saved is if he gives them a true and autonomous free will apart from his force, and in that he draws the non-elect without the guarantee that they'll turn to him in his hope that they will, for his word says that he truly loves all mankind. Listen to this verse again. Maybe you never saw it this way. We've, I read it already. John 3.16. Listen to what Jesus Christ says. Oh, excuse me. I'm all fired up. I love this topic, but I hate this topic. For God so loved the world. What is the, does he love the rocks? No, we know that that means that God loves everybody in the world. But, but hold on. We'll make sure that that's true. That he gave his only begotten son, that whoever... That didn't say the elect. It said that whoever, and again, the King James, I love, I don't always agree with the King James' translation on everything, but the Bible says here in the King James with John 3, 16, it's whosoever believes in him should not perish and have everlasting life. Did you notice the whoever, the whosoever, right? If Calvinism were true, Jesus Christ would not have said God so loved the world and, and use words like whoever or whosoever. He would have said God so loves the elect and all the elect who believes in him should not perish. And then for verse 17, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world or, or the people in the world through him might be saved. But now I have to attack one more. I have to attack the, the, a third of the fifth, I have to attack the L real quick. 
I'm going to go after the L in limited atonement for now. So was Jesus Christ's death for sins for all? And that would mean for those that were the elect and those that were the non-elect or not. Well, the Apostle John seemed to think so. 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. He says this, My little children, speaking of Christians, right? This epistle was written to Christians. These things I write to you so that you may not sin. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and, and he himself is a propitiation for our sins. And if you just stop there, for our sins, let's just say that he's speaking to Christians. Let's just say, for argument's sake, that, he's, that he is mentioning the elect. Let, let's just say that. So for argument's sake, and he himself is the propitiation, means that his sacrifice covered our sins, the elect's sins. But then he goes on there in verse 2, and he himself is a propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Same as John 3.16. Whoever shall believe in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Now listen to this. Now logic dictates that since John was writing to Christians, those saved already, again we'll call them the elect for argument's sake, then why would he also have added add the terms... And not for ours only, but also for the whole world. If he was talking about the other elect people that Jesus Christ's atonement paid for also, he, made, he, he, he makes two categories there, not just one. If he would have just been talking about more elect people that Jesus Christ's sacrifice was good for, he would not have said, and not for ours only, elect only, but also for the whole world. The idea, the very idea that he gives there, that he gives us there is that there's a distinction between those that are ours, meaning him and the elect, or we'll call them those believers, the elect, and between those in the world, right? There are two different groups. If he would if it was just the elect, his sacrifice was good for ours and all the rest of ours in the whole world. But he doesn't say it that way. So the only conclusion we're forced to make here is that he must have been referring to those who were the non-elect, but that can still be adopted in because God is gracious and merciful to all mankind. Those he's hoping, Acts 17, that he will that'll see his grace and his goodness and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and turn to him. Uh, but not because he's going to force them or because he's going to make them because he gave them autonomous. Free will. Was this the only place where we read of an elect or predestination child of God speaking something about those that are not saved or the non-elect to others that are saved? No, it's not. First Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 6, we read this. Therefore, and here's where we start to see Calvin's Calvin's false God, his, his, his crazy God. Therefore, Paul writes to Timothy, therefore, him writing this epistle to other believers, we got to keep that in mind, I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and givings of thanks be made for all men. He didn't say for the elect. He said be made for all men. Then he goes on to list off those categories. For kings and all our authority that we may, that we may lead quiet and peaceful lives in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. Verse 4 who desires all men, notice he said all men there, to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself a ransom for all <laughs> to be testified in due time. Now, now again, 
getting back to Calvin's schizophrenic God, same question as earlier, does God have to desire his elect to be saved? If they are his elect, and he already knows and sees that they will be saved, for he predestined them from the time before the foundations of the world, would he have to desire them to be saved? And if that was so, if then, why would he desire them to be saved? He already knows that they will be saved because he sees it. And no one needs to desire something that they already know or that they already see that I have, that they have. They just don't need to, right? If Calvin's God was real, then he was schizophrenic. For only a schizophrenic God, think of the double election here, okay? That he either made some for heaven or made some for hell. Now, if here we read that God desires all men to come to the knowledge of the truth, he wouldn't be desiring his elect to come to the truth because they would already be coming. He, he, he for, predestined them to be that way. So he wouldn't desire his own elect to be saved. So he's going to desire the non-elect to be saved. But if Calvin's double election is accurate, he would be desiring the lost to come to him, but in the same side, his will, as they say, nobody can resist his will, his will would be forcing them not to come. Schizophrenia, schizophrenia, schizophrenia. Now, I saved the best for last. This is the one God showed me. I'm just, I, I was blown away. I never saw this scripture before, but using logic, Look at Romans 8, 28-30, logically up against another famous verse of the Bible. Again, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and those that are called according to, those who are the called, excuse me, according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among all brethren. Uh, moreover, whom he predestined, these he all, he's also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. Didn't say that he willed them to be saved. Didn't even say that he desired them to be saved. It says that he predestined them and he called them and these he justified and whom he justified he also glorified, right? Uh, so he has the called elect and they are his. <laughs> he foreknew them. He predestined them to be so from the foundation of, or before, excuse me, the foundation of the world and he adopted those that were the elect and, and then so on, right? Yeah, we have 2 Peter 3.9. I just love this verse because along with all that I've already spoken on about uh, this verse alone and 1 Timothy chapter 2 verses 3 through 6 is this puts the death grip on Calvin's false god and his and his schizophrenic god 2 Peter 3:9 listen to this the Lord is not slack concerning his promise what's his promise his promise for eternal salvation as some count slackness but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now, let's think about this with logic. If double election were true, meaning the elect go to heaven and the non-elect go to hell, because the books have been written, and God, since he sees the end from the beginning, assuming that this means that he sees all who are there and who's not there, then logic demands that we ask this question. And it demands an answer. Why would he have to be long-suffering or super-patient towards his elect to be saved? Listen now. 
not willing them to perish or go to hell, when, oh my goodness gracious, when it's impossible for an elect person to go to hell. Think about this, please. If they can't go to hell because double election and Calvin's schizophrenic God is true, why would he, only a schizophrenic God would be super patient towards somebody he already knows is saved, not willing them to perish and go to hell when it's impossible for them to go to hell. <laughs> wow, right? It's simple logic. Logic tells us this. Think about this in our own human terms here. Logic tells us that if you already know that the football team that you're rooting for is going to win the game because you've seen the game already, and in fact you willed it or made, made it to be so, and you're just watching the rerun or, or the recorded video of that game with a friend uh, that nobody, unless they were a wacko lunatic moron, would, would, have, uh, would have to be an extra super patient. Listen to, listen to this, please. Desiring the team that they're rooting for to win because they already know that they're going to win. If I saw the replay, or if I'm seeing the replay and I watched it live, and I already know they're going to win, I don't have to be extra super patient desiring my team to win when they already won. I'm not going to hope that they don't lose because I already know that they won. Come on, people. These are basic principles of logic. Basic the only way that someone would have to be extra super patient with the football team that they're watching and wanting to win is if they hope that they will win, Acts 17, and that they want them to win, but don't know if they will. That they're going to try to help them to win, yet they don't know. How can 2 Peter 3.9 and 1 Timothy 2 be referring to God's elect. Because again, God would not have to hope for what he sees already. Again, Romans 8.24, for we were saved in this hope, but this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? Wow. So if Peter and Paul aren't talking about God's elect then there, because they can't be, because God's not going to hope for something that he already knows, which they're not, they're not talking about God's elect, then why would God be desiring the non-elect to be saved if he already knows they will not be? In the double election doctrine, God Almighty would not be desiring for something that he knew couldn't happen. It's just simple logic. So you see, looking at the scriptures with simple logic, not with complicated ideas that are not found in the scriptures or adding words or books or verses that are not there, we can easily deduce that God definitely has an elect people that he calls, just as the 12 disciples of Christ in Ephesians 1 and Romans 8 speak of, but that he also desires and hopes that all, everyone, he wants everyone to look at the works of the elect, to, work, to look at the salvation of the elect, and, and be drawn to him. And, the, and he's calling them to Jesus Christ, but that he leaves that choice of accepting or rejecting up to us, uh, because that's why he made them with autonomous free will, not that we're greater than him, but because he made us that way. And, and in the five-point Calvinist perspective of, of the double election principle that he taught, he and all of his followers don't believe that people have free will, true autonomy, or a will of their own, either to accept or reject Jesus Christ outside of God's control. But that's not what we see. 
double election, the five points of Calvin up against the scriptures shows us that John Calvin's God was schizophrenic. And, and I don't want to worship a schizophrenic God. I want to worship the God of the Bible. Now, if you believe this, if you believe this, this Calvinism stuff, this, these, these five points of this, what I consider heresy, I want you to think about all the things that we spoke about today. And I want to ask, you need to ask yourself the question, why would God desire someone to be saved that he already knew was going to be saved? He made them so from the foundation of the world. Now, come on. He, he, he knows that they're not going to go to hell. If you're a Calvinist, he knows that the elect are not going to go to hell. Yet, 2 Peter 3.9 says that he he's long-suffering, waiting on them to come, not desiring them, or desiring them to come to repentance, not willing that they go to hell, or not wanting them, them to go to hell. Why, why would he not want something that he already knows can't happen. If there's no possibility you're going to go on the road tomorrow to work and get into a wreck, and I already knew it because I made it that way, why would I call you and go, okay, now be careful. Watch out that you don't get into a wreck. I already knew you weren't going to get into that wreck. Now, come on. God desires all to come to repentance or, or to be saved and none to perish. And, and all or none, all come to repentance, all means all. And not all of the elect. Now again, unless you follow Calvin's schizophrenic God. Please consider these points. And please, 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 please read the scriptures with this knowledge. Read the scriptures and with logic. And, and, I, and, and please... Don't follow Calvinism. It's a wicked and evil doctrine. God so loved the world that whosoever shall believe in him would not perish and have everlasting life. Praise God. Thank you for listening. Thank you for tuning in to Gospel Saving Church. God bless you.